welcome to Scary to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott, and I'm here to read you a couple of bedtime stories. First up tonight is a new author to the show, Ashley Hill, who lives in Delaware with her husband and three dogs, and she's always been into anything creepy. This story is dedicated to her brother, Adam Wright. Here is Fancy Meeting You Here. The building is cold and damp, yet beads of sweat are beginning to form on Sarah's forehead. It's her first time, and things are now becoming very real. Her hand is shaking slightly as she uses her sleeve to wipe the droplets from her face. You can do this. Just think about what he's done, she whispered to herself. She went over to the bench that was practically disintegrating before her eyes and grabbed the butcher knife. While making her way back over, she heard muffled groans starting to come from the man tied to the chair. His head began to move around as he groggily looked up at Sarah. She looked him dead in the eyes and with the coldest tone she could muster said, I hope you rot in hell before he could even try to gather his response she plunged the large knife deep into his abdomen sudden relief swept over her as she heard his last breath escape from his body the relief wasn't just because the job was done but because the feeling of regret never came Not wanting to linger, Sarah got to it. She began to remove all obvious forms of identity from her victim. One by one, she extracted his teeth with a dirty pair of pliers, gently dropping them into a small plastic bag. She thought about the lives this guy ruined as she began sawing off each fingertip, the blood flowing like a faucet down the arm of the chair and onto the rotting floor. She gathered his mangled parts and dropped them into the bag along with his teeth, preparing for proper disposal on her way back to civilization. Triple checking that she left no trace of her presence, she made her way outside to the car. The darkness is closing in quick and so is an ominous, dense fog. Sarah approaches a raging river and stops the car, using the fog as a cover for her sinister activities. She weighs down the bag and tosses the remaining evidence of her gruesome evening into the fiercely flowing water. While climbing back into the car, thoughts of family pop into her head. She can't help but wonder what they would think of her if they ever found out what she just did. What she is going to keep doing. Out of nowhere, (laughs) she began giggling, remembering back to a time when her and her brother were chatting about nonsense. And he asked her if she were ever to become a serial killer, what kind would she be? 
They had both agreed that they would take out the worst of the worst, those dick skins that didn't deserve any more chances at life. Even though she knows how her brother feels about these types of people, it's best that she tells no one about this. Not even him. Six months into Sarah's escapades, she is feeling pretty confident that things are going well. Not one of the four bodies has even been discovered yet. This is great news, since the plan for the next victim is slightly out of her comfort zone. As far as scum of the earth goes, this guy is right at the top. He continues to elude justice with the help of a rich family and fancy lawyers. The exact type of putrid creature that should be exterminated at the earliest possible moment. Which, if all goes to plan, will be tonight. Sarah seems to have something going for her when it comes to capturing the interest of this pervert. She happens to share very similar features to all of his victims, which is long brown hair, blue eyes, and a small build. Now, she just needs to find the best way to entice this sleazeball. Dressing like a two-cent hooker isn't by any means Sarah's go-to style, but let's face it, this place is a shithole, and looking the part is crucial. He's aware that a disgusting place such as this will have no cameras and no familiar faces. She can't help but smirk as she walks to the entrance, thinking about how the outside of this bar probably mirrors the inside of his soul. She grabs a seat in the corner, just across the room from him, a place where she can make herself known without being obvious. Throughout the night, he locks eyes with Sarah quite a few times, and every time it happens, she is simply enthralled that he is unknowingly transitioning from the predator to the prey. Banking on the fact that they have played this game long enough, she gets up to make her way to the door. Having to walk by him in order to exit, she gives one last glance in his direction as she passes his table, hoping that seals the deal. Once making it across the empty parking lot and into her car, she starts to relax a little. She slowly puts on her seatbelt and starts the engine, waiting for him to make an appearance at any moment at her back door. A minute, maybe two, passes, and she starts to wonder if this plan is a bust. She decides to continue on, putting the car in drive and departing this vile dwelling. Just a few seconds down the road, she sees headlights approaching in her rearview mirror. Could it be him, she wonders, but she knows only time will tell. Turn after turn, the lights are unwavering, keeping about the same distance behind her the entire time. Finally, their destination is encroaching. It's a dark and desolate area of the woods. An area she can be sure that when he tries to scream, it'll just disappear into the darkness of the night. Sarah pulls into the long and winding driveway, and with no hesitation, 
so does the car behind her. The old abandoned cabin suddenly comes into view, and it is just as creepy as the day she found it. She pulls past the cabin, parking behind it for a quick access to the basement doors. Instantly, she emerges from her vehicle, as did the person in the car behind her. His figure is illuminated by the intensity of the moon, and she can finally see. Yes, it's him. The minute he is out of his car, he's already moving towards her, speaking in a deep, harsh voice. You must have known that I wanted you alone. In the moment, she decides to play dumb. Who are you? What do you want from me? At this point, he is so close that his chest is practically touching hers. He continues. You know who I am. He brings his lips next to her ear and whispers. I'm your worst nightmare. She pulls her head away from his repulsive mouth as her face transforms from bewildered to incredibly menacing. She looks up at him and replies with a sweet tone and a devilish grin. But... <laughs> You got that wrong. I'm your worst nightmare. Swinging her arm up as hard as she can, she plunges a small knife into his neck. He crumbles to the ground, grabbing at the protruding knife as blood begins to pool around him. The gurgling didn't take long to subside, and as it did, Sarah could still hear something. Listening intensely, she realizes... It's coming from inside the cabin. Is that music? She asks out loud, fighting with the urge to run for the car and get the hell out of there. She creeps up to the tiny basement window and takes a peek inside. Upon looking in, she notices a dim light on and what looks like a person sitting in a shabby, wooden chair. Leaning a little closer for a better look, she sees a tall, lean figure coming into view. They grab the light and reposition it. As they do, Sarah lets out a gasp. In the chair sits a lifeless man with a large axe still stuck in the back of his head. Just as Sarah is about to creep away, she catches a glimpse of the dark figure's face in the light. She darts over to the rusty basement doors and pries them open. Stumbling down the steps, she can now clearly make out the classical music playing in the background. Upon hitting the last step, the tall figure spins to face her. She can now see he's wearing a long, black, blood-soaked apron and rubber gloves. Wow. To think that I almost just left without catching a look at your face. Sarah said calmly, moving in closer. His response came back jumbled. I, I can... How did you... What are you doing here? She motioned for him to hold that thought as she climbed back out and into the night. She was only gone for a couple minutes. When suddenly, a dead body came rolling down the crumbling cement stairs and onto the soiled basement floor. 
gradually emerging into the light, she said, No need to explain, brother. We all have our secrets. And next up tonight, I am so excited to read from you an excerpt of a book by Tracy M. Carville. You know Tracy from her fantastic stories on the show, including Halloween, A Place of Honor, The Lighthouse Keeper, and fan favorite, Can I Come In? Tracy has become one of my favorite authors, I am not kidding, so to be able to share a piece of this book with you has me over the moon. The book is called Children of the Tithe, and well... You'll see from the first chapter, it's one of the most frightening things I've ever read. And once you hear this, you'll be dying to know what happens next. So go pick up a copy on Amazon. I've linked it in the show notes. Here we go. Chapter 1. The Ice Field For years, Heidi had been hearing people say that she was an old soul, strangely mature for her 12 years. She didn't know if this was true. She'd been an only child before her parents were killed in a car crash, and there had been no other children around when her grandmother took her in. She switched schools a few times, once when her parents died, and again when her grandmother got sick and went into hospital for a while. She didn't have any close friends, so she generally kept to herself and quietly got on with things. When she opened her eyes and saw that she was lying in a vast field of ice-encrusted grass. Her first instinct, unlike many of the children she could hear around her, was not to cry or scream. Instead, she looked around and, once she was certain that she did not recognize the place, she swallowed her panic and took a moment to think. How had she gotten here? She remembered being woken from her sleep at the boarding school by a cool hand touching her face. She'd been startled to see a slender, shadowy figure leaning over her, and alarmed when she saw that all the girls in the dormitory had similar figures bending over them. But the figure had whispered to her in a gentle voice, and her fear had subsided almost as quickly as it had started. Come with me, the figure had whispered. I will take you to an enchanted a vast garden in which you can play with such wonders like you have never seen. Am I dreaming? She had whispered. The figure leaned closer, its bright, jewel-like eyes becoming visible in its shadowy face. Oh, yes, and it is such a glorious dream. It smiled. A thin, curved line of white in the dark. It held out its shadowy hand. She'd reached out, the distance seeming strangely long in the gloom, and took it. Its hand had been cool and dry, but strong as it pulled her gently up from the bed. Her sleep-fogged mind had flickered briefly to the stories of Peter Pan, which she read when she was younger of how his shadow had run away without him. The figure was like Peter's shadow, and it was taking her, she hoped, to Neverland. 
That would be a lovely dream. Second star to the right, and straight on till morning, she had muttered, and the figure had laughed, and its slender fingers enclosed her small hand and pulled her gently forward. Yes. It agreed. Come, little Wendy bird. She laughed along with it and let the figure lead her away from her bed. She half expected it to lead her to the window, but after a few steps, she suddenly felt herself being pulled forward, as if caught in a strong wind, and then... Then things got... jumbled. Heidi screwed up her nose, concentrating. She remembered being pulled through the darkness, the sensation of flying, and then... The air had gotten... Very cold. The darkness around her had blurred into meaningless colors and shapes, dim at first and then brighter, and then she'd... Then she heard a baby crying and opened her eyes. The baby was still crying now, somewhere close by, and beyond it, other children were crying too, screaming, calling for their mothers. Heidi got to her feet, shivering in her frost-dampened nightdress, and looked around her. The field was vast, the sky above it black, except for glittering stars, which seemed bigger and closer than she had ever seen before. They bathed the field in their cold, silver light, bleaching colors and leaving deep shadows. Only a few feet away, she saw a tiny baby lying in the grass, its round face purple and mottled with the cold, and effort of its crying. Its tiny hands and feet were waving, its white romper suit already drenched through with melted frost. Her heart lurched in her chest in dismay for the tiny thing. She hurried over and scooped it up, holding it to her chest to warm it. Its crying eased a little, and it looked up at her with bewildered, blue eyes swimming with tears. I know, baby, she said gently. I'm scared too. Now that she was on her feet, she could see all of the other children in the field more clearly. Boys and girls of every age, all either lying in the grass, sitting and hugging their knees, or wandering aimlessly. A few of the older children had done as she had and picked up the babies, but Heidi could see right away that there was no way they'd be able to carry them all. She also realized that None of the other girls from her dormitory were here, or at least, not in sight. The field seemed to go on forever. A young boy of about nine staggered over, blowing on his hands to warm them. Where are we? He asked her, his eyes huge and shining with unshed tears. She shrugged. I don't know. I just woke up here. Me too. The boy's bottom lip quivered for a moment, but he managed to hold back his tears. I was in bed, and then someone woke me up, and then I was here. Heidi nodded. That's what happened to me, too. She paused, then added, I thought I was dreaming. The boy shook his head, dark curls tumbling about his forehead. It's too cold to be a dream. He stuck out his hand. I'm Tim. The gesture was oddly charming, 
Heidi smiled and, whilst juggling the crying baby in the crook of her arm, freed up her other hand to shake his. I'm Heidi, she said. I'm twelve. Tim smiled. I'm ten. He pointed at the baby. Who's that? Your little brother or sister? Heidi shook her head. I found them in the grass, she replied. I don't even know if it's a boy or a girl. Aw, that sucks. Tim huddled closer and reached out to tap the baby on the nose. Hey you, hi! The baby looked up at him in comical surprise and its cries tapered off. Then it gave a wobbly smile. Heidi laughed. (laughs) They like you, she said. Tim looked up, opening his mouth to reply, but his eyes drifted away and he froze, his skin draining of color. Alarmed, Heidi turned her head to follow his gaze, and an involuntary whimper escaped her lips. On the far side of the field, or as far as they could see, many figures had appeared. They emerged as if walking out of a mist, fading into view from nowhere. They were all humanoid, but very far from human. Heidi saw things with horns and others with wings. She saw squat, hunched creatures with sharp fingers and tall, lanky giants that moved in enormous strides. All manner of creatures descended upon the icy field, silhouetted against the starry, bright, but moonless night sky. Heidi stared, all the warmth draining from her already numb body. She felt Tim's cold hand snake into hers, and she clutched it tightly. As they watched, the first lanky figure bent down and, with one spindly white hand, plucked a toddler out of the grass and tucked it under its arm. Then it turned and faded back out of sight into the non-existent mist. The squat, hunchbacked creature picked up a smaller baby and shoveled it into its wide mouth, carrying it off between large, blunt teeth. From up above, a bluish-gray winged creature circled an older child, a girl in a long nightdress. It snatched up both of her hands, flexed its wings, and carried her, screaming, up into the sky. One by one, the strange beings roamed the field, selected a child, and carried them away. The cries of the children changed from panic and confusion to terror. Tim let out a low moan. I don't want to, he whimpered. Heidi knew exactly what he meant. An electric shock of fear burst from her chest and was now bristling through her nerves, every instinct in her screaming at her to flee. She tugged on Tim's hand. Come on, she said, and started walking briskly away. She wanted to run screaming, but she would not allow it. If she did, she would fall, and then... The long grass was painfully cold against Heidi's bare legs and feet, and before long, her teeth were chattering. Tim, who was wearing pajamas and also barefoot, didn't seem to be faring much better. At least the baby seemed to be more comfortable. It was curled up quietly in Heidi's arms looking up at her and Tim with uncomprehending eyes. They began to pass other children, 
Heidi caught their eyes one by one and said the same thing. Follow us! Quickly! Tim caught on right away and began doing the same. Only he added, Monsters are coming! The other children, the ones who were old enough to understand, got up and hurried after them, some of them scooping up toddlers and newborns, some leading smaller children by the hand. One little girl, who couldn't have been more than five, tottered along behind them, doing her best to carry a chubby toddler almost as big as she was. Eventually, a bigger girl took the toddler off of her, and they fell in step beside the others. Where are we going? Tim asked Heidi. Just away. The terrified screams of children behind them started to sound closer, and Heidi risked a look over her shoulder. Sure enough, the creatures were catching up to them. A large mass that didn't even seem to have limbs flicked out a ropey tentacle and snatched up a girl a few hundred yards away. She shrieked as she was dragged backwards toward it, her voice cutting off abruptly as she was folded into the writhing, wormy mass. Heidi quickened her pace, jogging through the grass, careful not to let it snag her feet and make her stumble. The other children kept pace, the smaller ones struggling as they were dragged along by the bigger ones. Heidi tried to ignore the crawling sensation across her skin, anticipating the sting of monstrous claws sinking into her flesh any second. Then, one of them, she didn't see who, let out a horrified scream. Oh god, it looks like the Babadook! Heidi didn't know what a Babadook was, but the raw terror in the child's voice was enough to break her nerve, and she broke into a run. The fear spread through the children like wildfire until they were all running, stumbling, dragging their companions through the grass. Suddenly, out of nowhere, a tree line was visible ahead, like the creatures behind them. The trees seemed to just materialize into existence, whereas before it had just been an endless field of ice. Heidi silently willed her legs to run faster, her breath tearing at her throat. The baby in her arms was wailing in fear, and she could hear Tim's ragged panting to her side. The trees loomed bigger as they got closer, impossibly large. Finally, they broke through the tree line into a dense green forest. Almost immediately, the sounds from behind them muffled and faded away. At the same time, Heidi became aware of a sudden warmth to the air. Confused, she hesitated and her feet tangled beneath her, spilling her forward onto the forest floor. The baby, her mind screamed, but she managed to twist to the side just in time, hitting the ground with her shoulder. It hurt, but the baby was safe, frightened and shaken, wailing at the top of its tiny lungs, but safe. Tim fell to his knees beside her. Get up, he gasped. We have to keep going. He grabbed her free arm and pulled her to her feet. She glanced back and stopped. Tim yanked on her arm again. Come on! Heidi shook him off and pointed. Look! Behind them, the ice field was gone. Beyond the trees they had just run through were... more trees. The children following her were appearing there, fading into view just like the creatures and the trees had. One by one, they noticed her standing still and stopped too, milling in an uncertain group, looking around. A silence, punctuated only by their panting and gasps for breath, fell over the group. The silence was broken 
as one of the older kids gave a shout. What the fuck? The taboo word startled them all. Someone gave a nervous laugh and then it spread. Before long, every child was giggling, almost hysterically. One by one, they all dropped to the ground, exhausted and damp. Interview number 306. Investigating Officer. This is the interview with Lauren Caldwell, a psychic and medium, being conducted at the London office. Miss Caldwell was one of the many people who came forward with reports of strange energies on days preceding and following what is now being called the event. Task Force E conducting interviews with some of these people to record and investigate the claims. Thank you for talking to us, Miss Caldwell. Lauren Caldwell. Please call me Lauren. All right, Lauren, can you please tell us for the record what you experienced in the time leading up to the event? As you said, I'm a psychic by trade, and I also give tarot readings and conduct seances. I have a sensitivity, you see, to other planes of existence, to things that vibrate on higher frequencies than our own. Uh Uh-huh. Please go on. It was maybe a week or so before what happened, and I... I was having a very hard time concentrating on any of my readings, and I'm usually able to go into a trance like that. But I just had this sense of strong waves of very intense energy. Every time I tried, it was like... I don't know how to describe it. Please try, Lauren. It felt like I was all hopped up on energy drinks, you know? Buzzing, big energy, couldn't sit still. I had to keep getting up and clapping my hands and stamping my feet to ground myself. Or I felt like I might fly out the window or something. And over the next few days, it got worse. I started to feel it all the time, not just when I was trying to connect. I was hyped up and supercharged all the time. I thought I was going crazy. Lauren, I have to ask, do you have any history of mental illness or episodes of anxiety or depression? No. Like I told you before, I'm perfectly sane, just sensitive. Does anyone in your family have a history of... Like I told you before, one of my aunts was supposedly crazy, but I don't know if she was ever actually diagnosed with anything or if she was just eccentric, you know? She was kind of like me. A lot of sensitives are told they're crazy, you know. We, we get told we're delusional or, or schizophrenic or... I understand. Getting back to the days surrounding the event, how was this energy on the day itself? Oh, very high, very high. I was tearing my hair out by then. And on the days after? It started to fade. I didn't know it till after, of course, but the night when... When it happened, that was when it was the worst. I didn't sleep a wink all night. Then the next morning, you know, after. Then it started to go away. And it went fast, really fast, much faster than it came on. A couple of days, and it was gone. When did you suspect that it might have something to do with the event? A few days afterwards, when the news stories really started to come out and we knew that that it had happened all over the place. 
some people in a Facebook group I'm a member of started talking about it. You know, kind of like, hey, what if, you know? And I joined in with it. I, I thought it was interesting, but I... I didn't think it was true. Kind of like those crazy conspiracy theories you hear about sometimes, but the more we talked about it, and the more people there were saying they felt it too. Did the other people you were talking to report feeling the same sort of sensations you described? More or less, yeah. They all said it was very, uh, you know, energetic energy. <laughs> What made you decide to report it to the police? Well, after a month or two, when nobody was getting anywhere, I just felt like, you know, what could it hurt? I didn't really think you'd pay any attention to me. But you hear those stories sometimes about how psychics help the police catch murderers. I don't know, I just figured I'd report it and then I'd have done what I could. And I wouldn't have to feel bad about not doing anything. And honestly, I thought you had ignored me. I mean, I reported this ages ago. It's been nearly a year since the event happened. I was really surprised when you called. Yes, well, in the absence of any other leads, we are investigating all possible avenues of inquiry. Even the, uh, impossible ones. Yes. <laughs> I guess you must really be stumped then. Indeed, but we take missing children very seriously, Miss Caldwell. Oh, yes, sorry. So, in your experience, what would you say this sort of energy activity might be? Normally, energy fluctuations are the sign of a spiritual presence. Normally, I deal with the spirits of the deceased, which usually have a negative energy impact. Cold spots, feelings of dread or fear... A draining of your vitality. So, the exact opposite of this. This was more like a massive injection of vitality. I've noticed it before on a very small scale. When the planets are aligned in such ways, or the moon is full. But nothing like that. Nothing like that. So, you have no idea what it might have been. I could only guess. And what is your guess? Something not human. Not human. What would they be then? I honestly have no idea. Thank you for listening, and thank you so much to my authors tonight, Ashley Hill and Tracy Carville. Ashley, that was a fantastic little twist at the end there. I loved it. And I have a brother, too, who I used to have the sim similar uh, macabre conversations with, so I related. Uh, not fully related uh, to the ending, but you know what I mean. And Tracy, please, again, the book is called Children of the Tithe. Go pick up a copy. Again, I linked the Amazon in the show notes um for those of you I've, I've been asked this before the show notes are just the little uh description box that's attached to the podcast please go pick it up seriously i love this book i got an early copy and thank you which thank you so much tracy for that it's honestly it's so haunting and i haven't even told tracy this the that first chapter is very similar 
to an actual dream I had like months and months ago, probably maybe like a year ago now, that has haunted me since then. So when I first read that first chapter, it was doubly eerie because I was like, Tracy, why are you in my head? How do you know about this dream? Seriously, it was so creepy. I love it so much. Her work is beautiful. Um, tr Google her name plus scary to sleep to find all the rest of her work on the show because it's seriously it's fantastic I know I'm just I'm I, I'm just fangirling right here but it's seriously fantastic again children of the tithe Tracy M Carvel link in the show notes uh, you can check out the show on social media you can follow me on Instagram Twitter um, Facebook all those places you can follow the show at scary to sleep uh, what else? Oh, if you have a story you'd like me to work my magic on, feel free to send it to scarytosleep at gmail.com. It's a great keepsake to have for your work. Um, I have lots of, I get lots of submissions, so just know if you do send something in, don't hear from me right away. It's not that I've ignored you. It's just you're in a digital line of sorts. <laughs> and uh, let's see what else. Um, oh, Patreon patrons. Thank you so much for your support. Uh, you've really come in clutch for me this month. I think I've mentioned that before. Uh, go join the Patreon. For a dollar a month, you get ad-free episodes. For $3 and up, you get bonus episodes. So that's fun. I'm planning a video right now that I want to do for Patreon. Well, not that I want. I'm going to do. And I'm planning it out. And so that's going to be a bonus soon. And I'm very excited about it. And I'm writing the next Guided Nightmare. I got a message from someone who said I used to do Guided Nightmares every Sunday. And I wish. I, I don't know if you experienced a quantum death. And in a different universe that you came from, I used to release Guided Nightmares every Sunday. And if so, that version of me is just has her life so much more together. <laughs> and is probably making way more money than me too. So good for her. But uh, in this universe, I have never done that, and I wish I had that power to write that uh, much. I don't. Uh, Stephen King and I share a birthday. I wrote, I adapted one of his stories, but I did not uh, receive from the universe his fortitude and his um, uh, what's a good word for it? Uh, his ability to write like the wind. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I'm a slow writer. Sorry. But there is a new one coming soon, so excited about that, especially for those of you. You can drop into any of them. They're all very listenable um, singularly, but to those of you who have actually been paying attention to the little overarching story that I've been putting in, this next one is going to be furthering that story along, and I'm really excited about it. It's been fun to have this little little bit of you know, uh, of a story, I guess, of a narrative that I've been slipping into these. I realize I haven't talked to you in a, in a while. Well, I guess I did talk last week during the voicemail full episode, which was so much fun to do, by the way. Feel free to leave me another voicemail. I've gotten a couple since then, but yeah, I'm going to let them kind of stack up so I can do another bonus episode like that. Again, you can ask me questions, leave me scary, try to scare me, try to uh, uh, get my hackles up. You know, we'll see. I wasn't scared last week. I was delighted by a poem last week that someone left me. And I'm going to play that next week on the show. I was going to play it this week. But this week, time got away from me. So I'm not going to play it this week. But next week, I'm going to play it because it's fucking cool and excellent and awesome. And I was just really excited about it. 
for let's see uh baking i'm not very good at rambling it's like i'm out of uh practice of rambling baking if you are following along baking let's see what have i done <laughs> what did i bake i did something exciting what did i make i really don't remember what i made this week i know i did something oh you know what i did ah i i used some i had some frozen cinnamon rolls from a batch that i made a while back they were about to get freezer burned so i made those but i stuffed into the little crevices i stuffed some walnuts and chocolate chips and for the frosting or icing i instead of making a cream cheese frosting i made a brown butter icing let me tell you, I could have just gotten a spoon and eaten the entire thing of just the icing. It was the best icing I've ever made in my life. It's so good. Oh my God. I'll have, ask me for the, again, feel free to ask me for any recipes that come up that I mentioned that you would like. Um, brown butter icing though on cinnamon rolls is a game changer. I'm telling you, it was crazy good. I think it'd be really good on like a spice cake too. Honestly, it'd be good on anything. It was so good. Again, you, I could have eaten it with a spoon just by itself. Okay, and the ice cream truck is coming by because it's, of course it is, because it's after 10 p.m. And that's that's when kids want ice cream, right? Um, look, I'm not naive. I know they sell drugs out of those sometimes, but <laughs> it's still kind of hilarious that an ice cream truck comes by so late at night. And if you didn't know that, well, now you do. So you get to pass that knowledge around. Okay, I'm going to go and chill and you are going to go and chill or finish your day I don't know when you're listening to this finish your dishes fold your laundry finish that commute whatever it is you may be doing just know that I love you and drink your water and go get some sleep sweet dreams <laughs>